Well, good morning, all. Um, as Bob commented, you know, the, the band is a bit light on this morning, so is our kids' church team. So just a, a little plug to say, if you're not doing anything else on a Sunday morning, uh, you might want to ser- play an instrument, serve in kids' church, and, uh, and bless the, the wider community in that kind of a way if you're, if you're able to. Well, as you're probably aware, my family is into musical theatre. Uh, and so this weekend, uh, Meryn and Sahara are in The Wizard of Oz. Continues next weekend. You can still buy tickets, so you know, get, get around that. Um, and in June, all four of my kids will be involved in, in The Lion King Junior, as well as um, Meryn doing the vocal director for that. So promotion aside, uh, for our family, we are, we're non-sporty. We have started following a sport, but we don't play any sport, and that's not our, our thing. Musicals and theatre has been our thing. So then when the musical Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda came along, well, Marin was onto that pretty early on. Uh, this is a show that holds the, most record, uh, holds the record for having received the most Tony Award nominations, and it won 11 of them, missing out. Uh, just on the record for that as well, with 11 awards. Um, and it's won numerous other awards and a lot of critical praise. But when Meryn started listening to the music of Hamilton, you know, in the car and around the house, I did not get it. I was not on board. I did not enjoy it. I didn't get the hype. It wasn't my thing at all. And then it came to Disney+. Plus. And I'm pretty sure we signed up for, for that just so we could watch Hamilton, at least at that point. We, anyway, that's a different story. So, and, and we watched Hamilton then as a family. Now, I came to it with really minimal, low expectations. All I knew about it was I didn't enjoy the music, but I was blown away. It was phenomenal. I loved it, and now I love the music. And, and my expectations about it were absolutely utterly exceeded. And so then the live show came to Australia and we were mad keen to see it, which we finally did get to do down uh, in in early April down in in Melbourne. Now I came to it now with really high expectations. I have to say I was underwhelmed. Don't get me wrong. It is a brilliant show and I would go see it again tomorrow if I could. So it's, it's amazing. It was phenomenal. Um, and, and they did some really great things in it that made it, you know, their own. I mean, it must be really hard for them to, you know, everyone's seen it on Disney. It's this thing in, in the U.S. and for them to make it their own, to, to kind of appropriate it themselves and not just be an imitator. must have been really hard and they did some really great things in, in that regard. But what I was particularly looking forward to was being blown away by the music. I wanted to feel it through my bones. I wanted the bass to reverberate through the building. I wanted, I wanted to be thrumming with the, the volume and the, the music just going for it. Now, it could have been because we needed oxygen masks where we were sitting and binoculars to, to see anything. <laughs> that could have had a factor in maybe, maybe all that was happening if you actually paid good money or in good seats, but where we were, all that kind of resonance and whatever had had dissipated and we did not get to feel that especially you know too taking a family of six to the theater that is not a cheap undertaking so hence the the cheap seats but I was bummed out then by that that I didn't get to feel it in the way that I wanted to but it's all about expectations isn't it I mean when I had low expectations 
they were excited in seeing it on Disney. When I had really high ones, I was underwhelmed. Though, as I said, I would definitely see it again. Well, as we continue with the story of Samson in, in the book of Judges, I wonder what expectations you bring to that. See, maybe, maybe you remember from Sunday school, you remember the highlights of the story. And so you're looking forward to some, you know, donkey's jawbone-wielding action as he kills a thousand Philistines with it. Maybe you remember him breaking free of all the different ties and bindings that, that they try to capture him with. Or maybe for you, the standout is his final moments when with the last of his strengths, he destroys the Philistine temple and kills the leaders and the people in it. I mean, they, this, these are the highlight reels and it's, it's pretty impressive. Or maybe you don't know much about Samson. But you were here last week. And last week, David talked about his birth. And so we saw last week how his birth was announced by an angel even before it happened. And there's only a handful of times when that happens, and it's always significant, always special. You heard about how he was dedicated to God and set apart to be a Nazarite, and even more specifically, how he would be a savior to Israel. And that, that word was specifically used, how he would be a savior to Israel after their 40 years under um, Philistine oppression. So last week you heard the hype about him. You, you, you caught up with, with the buzz. And then he was born and we read that God blessed him and the Spirit of the Lord was stirring with him. And so now today, you know, yep, that was baby Samson. Now we're going to get to grown-up Samson. Now today you are, you are pumped. You are hyped to see what is going to come. You've got high hopes as we continue his story. Or maybe, maybe you don't know much about Samson, but you've been tracking with us throughout Judges and you've seen how each time when Israel is oppressed, God raises up a new leader to save them. And so knowing this cycle that we've been through a few times already, knowing Israel is under their oppression, knowing God has raised up Samson, you are now ready to be impressed as he gets to work. If this is you, then I suspect you're going to be like me seeing Hamilton in Melbourne. Prepare to be underwhelmed. So the stories we're looking at today is Judges 14. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, open it from the back where the grace is and uh, move forward to, to find Judges chapter 14. This is the story we're going to work through. And this, this chapter is broken down into five scenes. And each scene is kind of introduced by this phrase, went down. Samson went down, so-and-so went down. And, and though the phrase is used to indicate geography, you know, in the same way that we went down to Melbourne to see Hamilton, um, there's also a bit of a nod, a bit of an implication to Samson's kind of downward trajectory from all the hopes and anticipations we had of him to what he becomes. So let's look at the first scene then from Judges 14. It says, Samson went down to Timnah, and saw there a young Philistine woman. And when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. And his father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She is the right one for me. And his parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. So, here's Samson. We're, we've 
He's been set up for us as the as being the next big thing. You know, he's won the, you know, comparative to Hamilton, you know, he's won the awards. There's all the hype. There's all the talk about it. He, he, you know, he's been born. We know these great things about him. The next big thing. And, and what do we see when he then comes onto the page? What's he do? Well, he sees a hot chick who he wants to marry. And so he demands that his parents make it happen. Not exactly the grand entrance we were expecting. Instead of fighting the Philistines, he wants to marry one. Instead of staying within the people of Israel, he's forming connections to, to foreign and oppressive powers. Instead of honoring his parents, who, who want to suggest, you know, maybe you should look elsewhere, he's being a spoiled brat. I mean, he is, after all, a very special boy, and he demands what he wants. Instead of doing what's right in the eyes of God, he just wants what's right in his own eyes. So for someone who has been dedicated to God, for someone who is set up to be the saviour of his people, this is an underwhelming start. Maybe it'll pick up though in scene two. Let's have a look. We read on from verse five. So Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. And as they approached the vineyards of Timnah, Suddenly, a young lion came roaring towards him, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sorry, I went into the next scene there. But this is a bit more impressive, isn't it? You know, when... When we went down to Melbourne the other, the other week, we also went to the Melbourne Zoo. And normally when you go to the lion enclosure, they are just laying around sleeping on the opposite side, you know, as far away as possible from where you are, and it's very underwhelming. But we turned up just as they were having a wrestle with each other. There were two lions, and food had just been thrown in, obviously, and they were... They were at each other about it. It was, it was so cool. Um, and in the midst of it, they were roaring at each other. And I suspect that their roars were pretty restrained, but even so, they were impressive. I could feel them. You know, they were resonating through the ground. I could feel them in, in my bones. And so then, here's this lion coming roaring towards Samson. And the Spirit of the Lord comes on him with power so that he could grab that lion and tear it apart with his bare hands. Now, like, whoa. This, is, this gets us excited. This is more impressive. You know, it, it talks about he tore it apart like he would tear a young goat. I don't, I don't think I could even tear a young goat. That sounds horrific, but he did it to a lion. And so this gives us hope then, doesn't it, about what's to come as we consider Samson. So let's see what scene three shows us. We start at verse seven that I, that I read before. And then he went down and he talked to the woman and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and he ate as he went along. And when he rejoined his parents, he gave them some and they ate too. But he did not tell them where he had taken um, the honey he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now, let's just pause for a sec. Let's divert from Samson himself to divert to address what this story shows us about how to find a wife. That was, you know, where David set us up for at the end of last week. 
But I do want to say it's actually more how not to find, find a spouse. Because it's here in verse 7, when Samson's back in Tinder again, it's here that he actually now speaks to this woman, presumably for the first time. All he's going on prior to this is her looks. He saw this young, hot Philistine babe, and he wanted her for his, wi- for his wife. And that's, that was enough for him. And I realize in talking about her like that, that I'm being demeaning and degrading, but I, I'm doing that deliberately because it's reflective of how Samson seems to think about her. Because he knows nothing about her. Yet he wants her for his wife, insisting that she is right for him simply because of how she looks. And so his parents, rightfully, challenge him. They're pretty racist in in their questioning of his choice. But but if you look beyond that, the issue of the ethnicity, they point out to him that he's going outside of the covenant people of God in order to find a wife. Now, especially his mother, uh, they're trying to live faithfully to God. And they know the prohibition against intermarrying with foreign peoples because of how they draw you know, the heart and the life away from God and towards the worship and following of, of other gods. And Samson, I mean, he's meant to be dedicated to God. Surely he'd be better off then with someone who at least holds the same faith as he does and who follows the same God as he does. But Samson just ignores his parents. He's picked a woman just for her looks. He's picked someone who will undermine his fidelity to God. And he's ignoring the wisdom of of his parents who are trying to speak into him and and guide him. I mean, he's signed up for the ancient Israelite version of married at first sight, and it does not go well. When he does actually get around to talking to her, he likes her. So that's, I mean, that's that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. But as we'll see as the story continues, it does not end well. She ends up finding herself in a no-win situation and manipulates him into telling her one of his secrets, which she then spreads to others. And he leaves her in a rage, and she ends up married to someone else to avoid shame on her family. And then, ultimately, she ends up dead at the hands of her own people. Now, our danger in all of this is that we can read an ancient text through through modern eyes, but I think we can at least agree... uh, that we, if we're looking for a spouse, if we're looking for a life partner, we need to go for something more than just looks. That we need to listen to the wise counsel of others and we need to actually get to know the person before we set about marrying them. So, that tangent aside, let's come back to Samson. He's on his way to the wedding. And on his way there, he checks in on the, the carcass of the lion that he killed on his last trip. Now, bees have have made a hive within it. And so he, he gets some, you know, scrapes some honey out of the body for himself and he shares it with his parents. But he doesn't tell mum and dad where he got this honey from. Why not? He doesn't tell them because he knows that they would disapprove. He's been set apart to God as a Nazarite. And one aspect of that is that he would eat nothing unclean. And yet here he is touching a dead body to get honey out of it. In other words, he's making himself unclean by touching something unclean and then eating something that came from that unclean source. 
And so if his parents knew that, they'd have been horrified. They are far more concerned about him, his being a Nazarite and him you know, sticking to that vow than, than he is. But notice this too about Samson. Obviously he knows that he's breaking this Nazarite vow because otherwise there would have been nothing to hide. So he knows what's right and wrong. He knows he's not doing the right thing, which is why he doesn't tell mum and dad. He knows what God requires, but he doesn't care. He just goes about and does his own thing anyway. So we, we had just had a glimmer of hope for Samson as we saw him kill the lion, but now our hopes slump again as we see just the disregard he has for God and for his purposes. And we see this further as, as the next scene opens, verse 10. Now his father went down to see the woman. And there Samson held a feast, as was customary for young men. And when the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. Now one of the other requirements of being a Nazarite, so, so not to um, eat anything unclean was one of them. But another one then was to not drink wine or beer. But here is Samson at a wedding feast. And the implication, both from the customs of the time and the words that are used in the text to describe, you know, to recount this, the implication is that Samson is getting on the booze as much as the next guy. And then he's got these 30 companions who are 30 Philistine men who have no interest at all in the things and the ways of God, especially not as they relate to Israel's freedom and separation from them. So Samson, meant to be a Nazarite, set apart to God and his purposes, disregards and ignores them. And if anything, he moves closer towards assimilation with the Philistines than anything else. Now when, when we saw Hamilton, yes, I said I, I was underwhelmed, but there was so much to like and appreciate about it. There was just, there was just one thing that kind of let down my hopes. But when we look at Samson, he seems determined to underwhelm and disappoint us on every front. It continues as the scene goes on. Verse 12, Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Now tell us your riddle, they said. Let, let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And for three days, they could not give the answer. Now, this giving of a riddle, this challenge, this game, if you like, seems to be a, a, a normal practice. But normally, the, the riddle would be given, you know, mindful of the people who are hearing it and knowing that somewhere amongst the crowd, there would be someone who would, who would have that bit of knowledge, that, that bit of um, understanding that would unlock the, the secret of the riddle and be able to eventually figure out the answer to it. But Samson gives them a riddle that they had no hope of knowing the answer to. Now we know it because we've been given insight into the story, but, but none of them knew any of this. So Samson seems to be setting about making himself comfortable and, and rich with 30 cents of clothes, when most people, including those he's, he's testing, would probably only have about one good set of clothes. And so again, here we see the selfishness of Samson, who just wants what he wants. And, and he orchestrates things. He sets this unfair challenge for them so that they will be forced to 
make him rich and, and wealthy? Well, the story goes on that on the fourth day, realizing that they weren't getting anywhere in figuring out this riddle, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to, the death, to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? We'll leave that aside. myself off where, where is it so why should i explain it to you she cried the whole seven days of the feast so on the seventh day he finally told her because she continued to press him and she in turn explained the riddle to her people before sunset on the seventh day the men of the town said to him well what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion samson said to them if you had not plowed with my heifer you would not have sold solved my riddle now, you do have to feel for his wife, don't you? Someone's picked up on something already. Yeah, we'll get to that. But here are her people coming to her to say, betray your new husband, who you're trying to presumably establish a relationship, or we'll kill you and your family. She has no real good option here. But she doesn't tell Samson that this is what's going on. M maybe if she had, maybe if she'd been upfront about uh, the situation she was in, maybe the story would have unfolded differently. But as it is, Samson does not come out of this looking good. Because on day seven, the final day, he gives in and he tells us the answer to the riddle. Now, if you think about this, if he had held out like 12 more hours, he would have won. But because he got sick of her crying and her nagging, because she was killing the vibe for him, he gave in, and he told her. And then he insults her for doing what he should have expected her to do. If you had not plowed with my heifer, is as insulting then, uh, now rather, as it would have been then. However poetically he's doing it, he's calling his wife a cow that other people have used. Husband of the year? He is not. But this then leads us to the final scene in the chapter. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. Well, here, here we finally get some action against the Philistines. As Samson goes to Ashkelon, which is a major Philistine city, and he beats up 30 of their men to get the clothes that he owes. But he doesn't do this because he's you know, finally got onto God's agenda. He does this because he's in a bad mood that he lost his bet. He's throwing a tantrum, is what he's doing. He's using the anointing and the power of the Spirit for his own selfish ends. And after he's done it, he goes home to mum and dad, still in a fit of anger, but at least there, there are people who appreciate him and think he's special. Samson 
Man, he does not live up to the hype. As a saviour, he's pretty underwhelming. Listen to what one of the commentaries that I read says of him. It says that the rest of the Samson narratives after the account of his birth in, in chapter 13, the rest of the Samson narratives consists of a series of stories relating primarily to Samson's sex life and his revenge on those whom he sees as acting against his interests in this area. At no stage do we see him expressing any concern for or interest in what might be Yahweh's purposes for him, nor even for the well-being of Israel as a whole. The text seems to go out of its way to portray Samson as entirely concerned for himself, the exact opposite of the commitment to Yahweh, the commitment to God that a Nazarite vow was meant, uh, was supposed to express. And yet, as I was reflecting on this passage, I ended up in a text conversation with someone, um, and the, the story of Samson seemed relevant to that discussion, and, and this is what I wrote to them. I said, so Samson, he's an absolute idiot. He absolutely disregards his parents. He doesn't care about being a Nazarite. He's barely following God. He's much more interested in sexy times, in material blessings, and in his own pride, etc. And yet, he's God's saviour. And yet, the Spirit moves powerfully in him. And yet, he is who God uses. So here's the absolutely crazy thing about Samson. God doesn't change his mind about the role that Samson is to play. He is still God's instrument for the salvation of his people. And there's a verse that we skimmed over earlier when, when Samson insisted you know, on, on this smoking hot Philistine wife rather than someone from the people of God. Back in verse 4, it said that his parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time that they were ruling Israel. This was from the Lord. Samson made terrible, selfish choices that disregarded God and that used God's power for his own benefit, and yet, this was from the Lord. So let's consider the and yet because it's there that we find the hope of this story. How is it, you might be asking, that God could work through such a sinful, broken person as Samson? To which I would answer, how could he work through someone like you or like me if he didn't? So here's the first bit I hope that we find in this story. God works through sinful, broken people. Whether it's a Samson, whether it's a, a Bill Hybels or a Ravi Zacharias or a Matt Thorpe, God works through sinful, broken people. But what about? What about the damage that he's done to the witness to Christ? What about the hurt that he's done to people? What about the abuse of power and position? God works through sinful, broken people. I mean, are there still questions? Is there confusion, hurt, 
bewilderment, disillusionment. Yes, yes, yes to all those things. Yes, there is. There's nothing simple or clear about it. And yet, in one of the great mysteries of God and of His grace, He still chooses to work with and to work through flawed instruments. God works through sinful, broken people. Which leads then to the next bit of hope from Samson's story. That God works all things to his purpose. And God cannot be thwarted. Now, it looked like Samson was entirely disregarding God and his purpose, and yet somehow he was fulfilling it. We can think that we are so far off track, that we have messed up our lives so much that that whatever God had intended for us to do with our lives, the impact He intended for us to have, I mean, that must have gone long by the wayside by now because we have just messed things up so much. But who are we to thwart God? You, You think our bad choices can muck up His plans? You think the result of sin gets in the way of His good purposes? And thinking about this can, can take us to Romans 8.28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, to the, for those who have been called according to His purpose. Now this quote, verse gets quoted to us when we're in the midst of hard things, but in that context and, and in the context of Samson's story, where, where this was from the Lord, it speaks a truth to us that God works all things for His purpose. And his plans cannot be thwarted. But we look at Samson, don't we? And we look at the situations that, that we are in, and we look at the choices that, that we have made, and we wonder how. How, how can this be, be good, or how, how can this lead to good? And as I've sat with this verse o- over the years, I think the answer to that has two parts. Firstly, I think that far too often our our understanding of what is good is too small. And secondly, that our time frame for seeing that good is too limited. We do terrible things and we experience terrible, heartbreaking, soul-crushing things. And yet, God is still working His good. His plans cannot be thwarted. And so we can yet have hope. And we see this then supremely in Christ, don't we? Which is then where we find the third piece of hope from Samson's story. Because Samson is a deeply flawed Savior. But in his flaws, he points us to the perfect Savior, Jesus. See, Samson, he leaves us wanting more. Where we're underwhelmed. And we could say, though, that that's deliberate. He leaves us longing. We're we're not satisfied and nor should we be because he is meant to point us to Jesus. Consider Jesus. Sinful, broken people, even part of God's people, falsely accused him, judged him and executed him on a cross. And yet, somehow God was using them. And Jesus, he he was meant to be the Savior, but but look at his life. He was powerless, he was homeless, he had no army, he had no position of power. Ultimately, he was buried in in someone else's tomb and and was, was there just when it looked like maybe he's about to get started. 
And yet, God was working all things for his purpose and he was not thwarted. See, unlike Samson, Jesus was not a flawed saviour. Instead, because he lived a perfect, sinless life, death could not hold him. And he rose again to eternal life to perfectly and to fully save those who look to him in faith. And he saves us not from a foreign political power, but from the power of sin, from the kingdom of darkness, from the consequence of death that we deserve. And so here is where our hope lies. Here is where our hope lies. It lies in Christ and in His amazing grace. And Samson has pointed us straight to Him. So let's pray as we continue to worship Him together. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for what You have shown us from the life of Samson. God, his story is pretty bleak and discouraging, but in it we find hope. We find the hope that you use sinful, broken people. And that's us in a nutshell. You use us, God. We don't deserve it. We don't understand it. We do so much wrong. And yet, your grace extends to us to to yet use us. And so we give you thanks for that. We thank you for the great hope that nothing can thwart your plans, but that you are always working all things for good. So God, it means that in all things, things of our own making and things that you know, we experience you know, not of our choice, that yet we can look to you with hope and with confidence. Expand our, our vision of what is good. Expand our our patience for when we'll see that. But in the midst of it too, God, help us to, to keep on hoping in you, knowing that you are working all your purposes out. And God, we thank you for, for the story of Samson, for how it has pointed us to Christ. Oh God, he is then the perfect Savior, the one that we look to, the one that we lean on the one that we put our faith and our hope and our, and our trust in as the one who is able to completely and perfectly save. God, in Him we glory. It's Him that we worship. It's Him that we look to with faith and trust. He will never underwhelm us. He will never disappoint us. But He will always do what He sets out to do to make us more and more like Himself as He saves us completely. So God, for the forgiveness from sins, from the, from the freedom from the judgment of it, from, from being rescued from the kingdom of darkness, God, we praise you in Christ. We praise you for Christ and for his amazing grace that has set us free. We worship him now, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.